We turn now to the history of the Irish language, and specifically the numerous ways the speaking of Irish was discouraged and curtailed over the centuries. I'm joined now by historian and author Dr. Parigo O'Rourke, who has researched this topic and uncovered the stories of individuals who were persecuted for using Irish. Porig, the, uh, the first English laws that forbid the speaking of Irish, they go back as far as the 1360s. Tell me about the Statutes of Kilkenny. Yeah, 1366, the Statutes of Kilkenny banned a number of basically cultural expressions. And primarily, it's interesting, this was the English uh, king trying to ban English colonists in Ireland from partaking in Irish culture. So one of the things they banned was the sport of hurling, that uh, English colonists in Ireland or the, the Normans, these old Norman families, couldn't engage in hurling. But Article 3 specifically forbade English colonists in Ireland from speaking the Irish language or from doing business with the native Irish in Gaelic. So that was the earliest law that we have on record which bans Irish. It was followed up by Henry VIII in the 1500s with uh, the 1537 Statute of Ireland. And that act basically prohibited the use of the Irish language in the Irish Parliament. Now, again, who was sitting in the Irish Parliament? It was largely people of English stock. And then in the 1540s, there was a further act passed which banned the speaking of Irish in areas then under English rules. You're talking about the banning of Irish really in the Pale and in Dublin. So the first, the few medieval laws we have that specifically ban Irish in public are primarily based on stopping the English colonisers from going native. And we know even from the Irish language phrase, that these people were more, more Irish, Irish than the Irish themselves. themselves that certain... Yeah. Yeah, certain Norman families like the Fitzgeralds in in Limerick and the Fitzmorrises in Kerry actually very much integrated with the Irish and adopted Irish customs. But if we shoot up to the modern era, there is only one... The Irish language was never officially illegal on the street, in commerce, in shops or anything like that. There was only one place where it was illegal to speak Irish and that was in the courts. A law was brought in in 1737 called the Administration of Justice Language Act Ireland. And that forbade the speaking of Irish within the courtroom or the completion of legal documentation in Irish. And it could infer a fine of £20 or contempt of court. Now, that law, similar laws were also brought in at the same time for the speaking of Welsh. That has since been repealed in the 1960s for the speaking of Scots Gaelic in Scottish courts. Again, that's been repealed. But interestingly, the Administration of Justice Ireland Act is actually still in force in Northern Ireland today. And this is part of the debate that's currently in the North about the need for an Irish Language Act and to remove this piece of antiquated legislation. Now, as far as I know, the only person who was ever convicted of it was actually funny enough a judge. It was the Honourable Macdonough Mahoney of Cahar Savine, still a Gaeltochtaria in Kerry, and he had completed his court documentation in English, but had signed his name, just his signature, in Gaelic. And for that, he was dismissed from the bar and, you know, his job as a, a judge stopped just for signing his name, Oscailga. Uh, now, there was never anything, as you say, in modern statutes banning Irish on the streets, except in that instance of the 1737 Act. But you do get prosecutions for the use of Irish. Talk to me about two individuals, one with the very Irish name of uh, Neil McGillivrija and then somebody with a very un-Gaelic name of Claude Chauvin. What happened to those two gentlemen? 
Well, I would compare the legal situation then to something we saw in Britain a few weeks ago or last month when during the ascension of King Charles to the throne in England, people were arrested or were questioned by the police for holding up signs saying not my king and, and you know, anti-monarchy signs. Now, there is no laissez-majesté law which makes criticism of the monarchy illegal in England. There is in Thailand and other monarchies, but people were arrested then not for the crime of criticising the monarch, but for a public disturbance or for a breach of the Public Order Act. And that basically is the loophole that was used to prosecute Irish speakers in the early 20th century because there was no, no official law making Irish illegal outside of a courtroom. So if we start with Neil McGillivrida, Neil McGillivrida was a poet, a farmer, songwriter and a weaver in, uh, he was from Faymor in Donegal, so Gaeltacht area. And on the 11th of March 1905, he was arrested at Dunamore Fair by the RIC. Now, he had wheeled a, a small cart into town with his poetry books and his weaving on it. And on the side of the cart, he had his name written in the Clo Gaelic, the old Irish script. And he was arrested by the RIC, not under any Irish language legislation, but under the Trade Standards Act. And he was prosecuted because the name on his cart was said to be not legible. Now, he was defended by a newly minted uh, barrister at the time, a man called Patrick Pierce, who later became famous as a schoolteacher and uh, a revolutionary. And it was Pierce's one and only case at the bar. And Pierce argued to the judge that because it was a Gaeltacht area, because very few people there could speak, let alone read English, that having the sign in Irish actually made it more legible than the English version would have been, and that the Trades and Standards Act didn't specify which language it had to be legible in. Nonetheless, uh, Pierce lost. I think it was quite a good defence myself, but Pierce lost the uh, the court case, and the judge found against McGillivrida and fined him for breaching the act. And this ruling gave rise to a headline in Antlive Solace, the um, Gaelic League's newspaper, which was Irish is a foreign language, no different to Yiddish. And that in itself is quite interesting because uh, there were actually members of the Jewish community in Dublin who were learning Irish at the time, Michael Noyek in particular, some of whom actually attended Pierce's uh, first Gael school, St. Endas, when it came about. You could expect somebody like Niall Michaela Vrija being arrested for his use of the Irish language, but Claude Chauvin? Yes, Claude Chauvin was an English uh, linguist. He was a professor of linguistics in Oxford. I believe his family were um, Belgian originally. And he spoke half a dozen languages. And one of them that he was quite interested in was the Irish language. So he, in typical Gaelic League fashion, he came to Cork, to the Muscari Gaeltacht in Cork, and he was dressed in the style of the Gaelic League at the time in a saffron kilt and fly played and was going around speaking Irish to people, interviewing people, learning the local dialect of, of, of Gaelan or Irish in that area. And he was spotted by an RIC constable who questioned him. And Claude Chauvas, a uh, French or Belgian sounding name, but an Englishman, replied to him in Irish. And he was arrested under the Defence of the Realm Act. This happened in, in 1916, just before the Rising. And initially, there was an attempt to accuse him of being a German spy, because, of course, naturally, an Englishman of Belgian extraction speaking Irish, that would be typical of <laughs> a German spy. Um, but he was fined five pounds. He refused to pay it. And he was actually imprisoned. So even before the War of Independence period, 
there was kind of this low level harassment of Irish speakers, not for speaking Irish itself, but for finding loopholes in the law whereby they could be victimised. Now, arrests increase, as you would expect, during the War of Independence. And uh, one of the people who got into a spot of bother was uh, one Charles Burgess. Tell me about that. Yes, Charles Burgess, better known to us today as Cahill Brewer. Cahill Brewer, of course, a veteran of the 1916 Rising and a very enthusiastic Gaelic leaguer. He was arrested on the 4th of January 1919 in his constituency of Watford. He had just been elected, of course, MP for Watford and had been down there addressing political meetings. And as he returned on the train through Thurless railway station, he was questioned by an Irish RIC constable. Again, there's no black and tans, no very few Englishmen in the RIC at this stage. But a constable, Sean Barrett, asked Cahill Brewer for his name. And he said, uh, my name is Cahill Brewer. And the constable Barrett replied, quote, unless you give me your name in plain English, I must detain you. So he basically wanted, he knew who this guy was. He wanted the name Charles Burgess. But because Brewer insisted on giving his name in Irish, he actually arrested him. Now, Brewer was never charged. He was held for a number of hours and then released. But it's basically a a low level of of harassment. And it's interesting, in, in, in fairness, that you did have English members of parliament who raised this and other issues in the House of Commons. I'm thinking of uh, Captain William Benn, MP, who I think was a a Liberal and uh, a veteran of the the Great War. He raised in Parliament the fact that uh, nine people had been arrested in Dublin for the crime of speaking Irish and basically said, what is the purpose of that sort of thing? You know, this is ridiculous. It's making us enemies in Ireland. And one of the people who was arrested was actually Margaret Kyo. She was um, the only member of Cumann killed during the War of Independence. She died later during a munitions accident. But it just shows that ordinary members of the Gaelic League, of Cumann Sinn Féin supporters and just civilians going about their business were being prosecuted for using the Irish language, though not under any one specific act. And one of those who was threatened during the War of Independence was a future Governor-General of the Irish Free State, Don Labuchala. Yes, Don Labuchala at the time would have been very prominent in the Gaelic League and would have been the Sinn Féin TD for Kildare. Like Neil McGillivrida, he had actually been prosecuted prior to the Rising for having a cart with Irish language written on it, a trading cart. But his pub and grocery shop in Maynooth had the name Obuchla up over the door and it was raided by the British Army and the, the RIC. Now, Obuchla himself wasn't there at the time, but his barman was, was pulled out when he refused to take down the name and the signage in Irish and a loaded revolver was put to his head. And while that was going on, the assembled British soldiers and RIC men ripped down the sign smashed the windows of the pub and then daubed graffiti on the premises, God save the king, and then the initials B and T, obviously standing for black and tans. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Um, a pub that's still trading today in Barna in the, the Galway, Gaeltacht uh, and Connemara, Donnelly's or Tach Oddanela, as they say, the family there were threatened by the British Army and told to remove the Irish language signage over their door. And when they refused, the British Army returned in November of 1920 and actually destroyed the pub using explosives. There is examples of it happening in Killarney, again, not a Gaeltacht area, but um, Gleeson's newsagents was raided by the British Army. The Gleeson sisters who ran it actually barricaded themselves inside, but after a standoff lasting several hours, they were removed and the businesses were basically thrashed and 
boarded up. And again, the graffiti B and T for black and tans was painted up. And even on Tig Gwelach, a shop that's still there in Cahar Savine, still a Gaeltacht area today, that was actually burnt to the ground again because the owners refused to take down the Irish language signage. And there was at least one person killed for using Irish. Yes, that would be Sean O'Brien or Sean O'Brien in English, who was, he was a member of Mallow Urban District Council. Now, he would have been associated with Sinn Féin, but really he was prominent as a member of the Gaelic League. And he had been for years campaigning to get businesses in Mallow to put up their shop fronts in Irish to, you know, give a discount to people who would come in and try and do their business in Irish and really to encourage the speaking of the Irish language locally. Now, in... March of 1921, there had been an attack on an RIC patrol in the town by the IRA. Sean O'Brien was not himself a member of the IRA, though probably would have been a a supporter. But what happened was that night, uh, two members of the Black and Tans called to his home. They knocked on the door and when he came down from the apartment upstairs to answer the door, they threw hand grenades through the skylight, the window over the door and then fired shots through the door, killing him. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Irish education system. The formal education system, the national education system, begins in 1831. By the end of the 19th century, Conan Agoelga has managed to affect, I think, change in the attitude towards the Irish language in Irish schools. But tell us about those intervening years between the 1830s and the 1890s. Well, the current education system we have now, or the the system of national schools, was actually set up in the 1831 under something called the Stanley Letter, and that was an agreement between the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Edward Stanley, and Daniel O'Connell. Daniel O'Connell himself, for all the merits he has in terms of being anti-slavery and Catholic emancipation and stuff, was not a fan of the Irish language and said that he could witness its passing without, without a sigh. And it's interesting that when these national schools are first set up in Ireland under British rule from 1831 until 1878, the teaching and the speaking of Irish was actually banned in these schools. Now, it changes in the 1870s, but even subjects like Latin and French were far more commonly taught. And we have to remember as well that these schools were being run by the Catholic Church. Like today, over 90% of, of our schools in the south of Ireland have religious patronage. And the Catholic Church at the time, pre-independence, was very much opposed to the Irish language. And for example, there was a system in schools called the, the Tally Stick or Oscailga and Bata Score. And what that was, was every time a child was found speaking Irish, they would have a, a stick on a, a string placed around their neck and the teacher would mark it with their penknife. So if a child spoke Irish five times during the day, there would be five marks on the Bata Score or Tally Stick. And at the end of the day, they will get five lashes of the cane from the teacher. So that was an attempt basically to kill off the Irish language through the the education system. And this wasn't something that was restricted to Ireland. For example, in Wales, you had something similar called the Welsh knot. And that was a large flat piece of wood like a breadboard with the letters WN on it. That would be hung around the neck on a piece of string of any child caught speaking Welsh. And that almost was used to teach young Welsh children to become informers because if Miles Dungan was caught speaking Welsh in the morning, his job was to get rid of the board. And if he found Padraig O'Rourke speaking Welsh, then he would pass the board on to me and I would pass it on to someone else. And whatever child was found with the board at the end of the evening, they got the lashes for everyone. 
And even in Scotland, there was even a far grimmer version of this recorded by the historian Peter Burrisford Ellis, that an actual human skull put on a string was hung around the neck of children in the uh, Outer Hebrides who were caught speaking Gaelic. Is all of this more significant, do you think, in the 19th century than the opposition of people like O'Connell, even though O'Connell around the hearth, around the dinner table, the family spoke spoke Irish. But as far as he was concerned, the language of politics was, was English. Was that more important? And then obviously, were the effects of the famine more important than what was going on in the education system when it came to the decline of the Irish language? Well, I think, and it's something you hear of talking to, to people in Gaeltacht areas where sometimes parents or grandparents themselves made a conscious decision that in times of, let's say, famine or economic strife that our children are going to have to emigrate to go to America or to go to Britain. We need them to speak English and made a conscious decision not to speak Irish to them. But even after the famine and in better economic times, that system continued through through the, the education system. And as we've seen, even when Irish was becoming somewhat popular amongst people who hadn't previously spoken it in, let's say, in urban areas in Dublin, people were being prosecuted for speaking it. So I think through the law, through the school system and through the courts, there was a conscious effort to suppress the Irish, even though there was never a language on the modern statute book that forbade people from speaking Irish on the street. My guest is Dr. Porygog O'Rourke. Porig, many thanks for joining us and sharing that research into the persecution of Irish speakers under British rule. Mil Magath. Got a Mil Magath.